Now, if you can open up your Bibles to Exodus uh, chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. And as you open up your Bibles, I would like to set the context. God has made a great promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all their descendants, that he would be their God, and that they would be his people for all time. Now, according to that promise, God has redeemed Israel from Egypt. And in the chapters leading up to our text, God gives the plans for the tabernacle so that he may dwell among his people. But there's a shocking interruption. While Moses is meeting with God atop Mount Sinai, Israel fashions a golden calf and breaks faith with God. Now what becomes of God's great promise? Moses steps into the breach, and this is God's response. Behold the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Change is constant. So many things in today, whether it's economically, politically, geopolitically, socially. It seems the ground is shifting underneath our feet. And many are left struggling, trying to find something firm to stand on. And what we find in these words is the very solid ground of salvation. It is that foundation that is who God is And because of who God is, we can trust and hope in his promises. Two truths from today's passage, and the first is this. God's promises are guaranteed by who he is. God's promises are guaranteed by who he is. 
When we look around us, we find that human commitment depends on circumstances. In little things like meeting a friend for lunch, or big things like faithfulness in marriage. Our promises, our uh, commitment, often depend on the conditions. I think a stark illustration of this uh, are endorsement deals with athletes. When an athlete performs at a high level, everybody's happy. The champagne and the money flows. But when their performance is not up to par, or when they fall for grace, it is amazing to see how fast sponsors flee and reveal their thin loyalty. Now, though our relationships are not like endorsement contracts, there's a sense in which our commitment depends on the other's performance. And when others fail us, our love is often conditional. Now, the Lord faced such a situation in the Exodus Verse 1 opens up with the Lord instructing Moses to cut new tablets of stone and to come back up Mount Sinai to meet with him. This is because Moses broke the first tablets. He broke those tablets because Israel had broken faith with God. They put the Lord's commitment to the test. Now God had set his love on Israel and heard their cry. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, he redeemed them from the bondage of slavery and took them out of Egypt. He calls them his treasured possession. But what a pitiful possession they turned out to be. Even after being free from the bondage of slavery, it says in Psalm 78 that they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast. And they were not faithful to his covenant. Despite all this, God, like a husband to his bride, prepares a covenant ceremony atop Mount Sinai. If you can imagine what the scene is like, the earth is trembling. The mountain is smoking at the awesome presence of God. He calls up Moses And he makes arrangements for the tabernacle. He writes the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, on tablets of stone. But Moses doesn't even make his way down the mountain before Israel annuls the covenant by the golden calf. My Old Old Testament professor would like to say they cheated on God on their wedding night. Of all people, Aaron, the appointed priest, fashioned the golden calf. If you look at the priestly garments, they had the stones representing the tribes of Israel and then the two, shoulder, uh, the two stones on the shoulders. Aaron was to place Israel on his heart, bear the people on his shoulder, and bring them before God. But instead, he led them astray by leading worship to a false god. Of all people, Israel redeemed from the yoke of slavery, who ate manna from heaven, drank water from a rock. They used the riches that God had given them to betray him. And Moses broke the tablets because they broke faith with God. Now, church family, what would you do if you were God? 
how long would you endure this ungrateful, rebellious, stiff-necked people? If it was up to me, let's just say it would not be bread that I would be raining down from heaven. <laughs> but how does God respond? He answers, answers Moses' prayer and does not cut off Israel as they deserve. But he gives mercy and grace. Even though he could have poured out his wrath, he restrains his anger. And even though Israel went after another lover, the Lord maintains his abounding steadfast love and he remains faithful to his covenant. You see, God responds according to who he is, as we see in verses 6 through 7. Now, volumes have been written about the attributes of God, but I just want to highlight two things today. First, our God is a God we need. We can sometimes think of God as this uh, perfect, cold machine. But his attributes show that he is a personal God of love, even while we are yet sinners. For example, God is a God of Hannah. If you know anyone named Hannah, it is the Hebrew word for grace. He does not deal with us as we deserve, but instead he gives us Hannah, mercy and grace. He is a God long of nose, which is the Hebrew idiom to be slow to anger, to be long-suffering. If you think of an angry bull, the hot blast of his nostrils, God is instead slow to anger. He abounds in chesed, a covenant-keeping love, who surely forgives all kinds of sin. The more we come to know God, His attributes, and the more we come to know ourselves, the more we realize God is a God we need. Second thing that I want to call out here is that God remains true to who He is. Verses 6 to 7 are quoted about 20 times throughout the Bible. And it's a refrain that shows God doesn't change. Israel was not spared because they caught God on a good day. But they received mercy because he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. For example, as quoted in Psalm 86, because of who he is, he always inclines his ears to our cries. Lamentations 3, because of who he is, his mercies never end. They are new every morning. And according to Psalm 103, because of who he is, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as east, from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Unlike us, God is not moved by the winds of circumstance. His love does not depend on our performance. Rather, God's promises are guaranteed by who he is. So what does this mean for us today at Grace Mount Vernon? As you read through the 
pages of scripture. As you look back on the story of your life, is God now who he says he is? Is God now so good to us? Perhaps you're burdened by the demands of this world, always insisting, what have you done for me lately? You have to perform at work. You have to perform at school. We have to do so much to earn others' favor and be in their good graces. Perhaps you're struggling with recurring sin and shame, wondering how can God continue to be merciful to someone like me? Brothers and sisters, it is good to know that the Lord, the Lord, is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You don't have to catch him in a good mood, but because of Jesus Christ, we can approach his throne of grace anytime. And even though we have failed him so many times, he will never leave us or forsake us. His promise that he is our God and that we are his people is ever true because his promises are guaranteed by who he is. And that is why you and I can live with a sure hope. Which brings us to the second and final truth for today. God's promises are only ours in Jesus Christ. God's promises are only ours in Jesus Christ. Now you may already see a seeming paradox in verse 7. How does God forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but by no means clear the guilty? Or as the NASB version has it, not leave the guilty unpunished. And we know as early as Eden that the wages of sin is death. Now the world demands a God of love and no consequences, a God who sweeps sin under the rug and ignores its costs. But as we see here in verse 7, God declares that he is not only a God of forgiveness, but he is a God of justice that calls every sin to account. Now, I once heard an illustration from a pastor who goes home, uh, uh, an illustration about a man who goes home to find his house burned down and all his loved ones slaughtered, his life ruined in a single night. In this man's grieving, his one solace is that criminal was caught and that justice would be done. After a short trial, judgment day has come, and the judge comes out and declares, not guilty. Despite what he did, he says, he may go free because I am a loving judge, merciful and gracious. Now, even a young child can say, can tell there's something wrong here. A judge who does not do justice is as just as evil as the criminals he sets free. A good God must be just and cannot let sin go unpunished. Now, to a degree, we can make amends for sins against each other. We can make restitution. Uh, we can make penalty, pay penalties. But King David points out a greater reality in his confession. Against you 
You only have I sinned. All sin, whether against each other or in secret, is ultimately against God and his good law. So in the context of our passage today, how does God dwell with a people that continually offend his justice? Just a few chapters earlier, this people swore all that the Lord has said, we will do. And yet, they break that promise so quickly. How are they not consumed? God gives several clues to the person and work of Moses. First, God gives the law through Moses. Within this Mosaic law, God reveals a way to dwell with his people by the tabernacle. A way to atone for sin by the shed blood of sacrifice. We don't have time to go into all the detail, but the law taught the following in a very vivid way. First, although God was near, Israel's sin made a separation from, uh, between them. The people could not just approach the Holy of Holies where God presence, God's presence resided. Only the priest could go there once a year on the Day of Atonement. The second thing that it showed was that a sacrifice was only good, only as good as their last sin. It says in Hebrews 10 that these sacrifices could not perfect them. Instead, it was a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of uh, bulls and goats to take away sins. And lastly, the law showed that no one can meet its holy demands. In order for sinners to be right, to be just before God, someone would have to come and fulfill every iota of the law. Someone greater would have to come and fulfill all righteousness. Another clue God gives is Moses himself, whom he sent as a mediator. Moses stood between God and Israel and worked reconciliation between them. And we see this in our passage today. Uh, Earlier in Exodus 32, Moses offers up himself before God's blazing wrath. Instead of blotting Israel out, he pleads to God, blot me out of your book of life. In verse 3 of our passage today, you will notice that Moses stands alone before God on behalf of Israel. The rebellious people are nowhere in sight. God deals with the people by dealing with Moses. And in verse 9, God restores the covenant not because of anything the people did, but because Moses found favor in God's sight. You see, the hope of God's people is not in themselves, but it is on another whom God has sent. And as we read on through Deuteronomy, even Moses proves insufficient. He has to bear this stiff-necked people, and they continually break faith again and again. Moses doesn't have the power to change their heart. Moses won't live forever to contend for these people. And even because of his own sin, he could not take Israel into the promised land. Someone greater would have to come. So in light of all this, why is Moses so quick to bow down and worship? In Hebrews 3.5, it says that Moses was witness to what would be spoken of later. Moses saw a day when God would resolve this seeming paradox, how he could forgive sin but not clear the guilty. He saw a day when God would somehow 
deal with all the former sins passed over. And as the Lord descended in the cloud, in verse 5, that day came when, according to John 1, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the greater Moses, a perfect mediator whom the Father sent for us. As Moses stood alone on that mountain, Christ ascended the hill of Calvary and offered himself up for our, as our once and for all sacrifice. As Moses cowered before God's blazing wrath, Jesus drank down the Father's wrath for us. And as Moses found favor in God's sight, Christ is the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. By fulfilling all righteousness, Jesus has earned the right to give living water without price. As was foreshadowed in our passage today, Jesus Christ is the answer of how God can pardon sinners and take them as his inheritance. To any who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to be children of God. God's promises are only ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. So for some closing reflections, let us, like Moses, bow down and worship. For my friends here who have yet to believe, you and I, we will all go before the judgment seat of God one day. Knowing God, who God is, will you stand on that day on your track record? We all come before God with empty hands. We all come to God falling short of his glory. But on that day, my confidence will not be in me, but it will be in my Lord Jesus Christ. I urge you, for those who have yet to believe, don't just run, but fly to the cross of Christ. He will give you, no, he will give you new life and you will be a child of God. And as for my fellow believers, let us live a life of worship fueled by gratitude unto Jesus Christ. In Christ, we don't have to earn God's love. We live from God's love. And in Christ, all the motivation, we have all the motivation we need to love our neighbors, even our enemies, wherever we are at. So let us pray for ever greater measures of this grace by the Holy Spirit. And let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So to close, in the uncertainties of life and in our many failings, we can stand on firm ground. God's promises are guaranteed by who he is. And as it says in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Let us bow our heads. Lord, you are so good, so gracious. Thank you that you are 
a promise-keeping God. And you show your love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Holy Spirit, help us to marvel in the beauty of the gospel. Help us to live our lives thankful that you make the likes of us your inheritance. And help us to be your witnesses to those around us and be the light in the darkness around us. Many blessings to your name. Thank you for all that you have done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.